From Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, starting with verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. The word of the Lord. Let's stand for our gospel reading. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord says, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on this earth? The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's always so good to be with you all, and it is good to hear the word of the Lord in your presence, to be in community and do this thing together. Um, so I'm notorious in our household of missing plots in movies and TV shows, okay? So I'll get into a show or I'll get into a movie, and um, I get the character development. I kind of get the people, and I have certain people I like and feel the feelings you're supposed to feel, and... Um, get the very, very basic plot of what's going on. But, and, and I understand the themes usually, even later I'll go, oh, that theme and that film or that TV show is so great. I love that. But I miss like the actual machinations of the plot. <laughs> like how the story goes from here to here. I usually miss that. Uh, I started to realize that I do this because Ashley will start watching a show with me. She usually starts later than I do. I'll start new shows and then she'll jump in. And she'll start watching a show with me and say, what happened here? Did, did that girl die or did she run away? Why is everybody so sad? And I'll go, oh, 
something like that. <laughs> like one of those things happened. <laughs> or she'll say, is that his son or his nephew? Um, yeah, one of those, something like that. But I miss the actual details. I get the feeling of the show, but I often miss a lot of the very important details. And I want to think today about how this is kind of like our longing for justice in the world. We all want justice, and we get the deeper narrative that we somehow want the world put right. There's something not quite right about the world. And sometimes we can see parts of it and we can see clearly and we see kind of the basic idea and the basic structure. We know that we want a world where there's no pain or there's no injustice or oppression, where there's equality. We all want that, but we get lost in the machinations. What does it mean to want justice? Do I want justice for everybody or just justice against me? Do I just want justice for my group or my tribe? And then how do we get justice? How do we get there? And when we look at our world, everyday reality doesn't seem to always mesh, does it, with our dream for justice? That often the cries for justice and the longing of this deeper narrative and this voice that we hear doesn't go met. It goes unmet. But we live in a world that's longing for justice. We hear it all the time, the cries for justice. And I wanted to say when I wrote this that we live in a time now more than ever when people want justice, but I actually don't think that's true. So we look throughout history, I think there's always been this sense that reality doesn't match up with the dream for justice for the world put right. And we can't quite put our finger on why that is and definitely not on how that can be different. It's hard. It's challenging. But I want to suggest that human beings are hardwired to want justice, to want things put right, to want things restored. We hear this echo of a voice telling us that things should be different than how they are. Things that are broken should be right. Peace should be in the world, that we should have hope for something better, that there should be prosperity for all. We have that voice that we hear. We hear that echo of a voice. Sometimes it's faint, sometimes it's clear, but we hear it. And then there are other voices in our world that tell us that that voice is just a dream, <laughs> that it's just a fantasy. And sometimes, oftentimes, we are tempted to believe them, to believe those voices. Maybe it's not all. Maybe that dream for justice is just a dream. But we can't stop hearing it. I don't mind that at all, by the way. <laughs> that really is fine with me. It's up to you guys, but I'm fine with it. Um, we, we also long for, so we long for justice in general as a concept, but we long for justice in our own lives. The other night, um, somebody came through our apartment and just started taking out car windows, and we think they were just rummaging through. They didn't actually steal stuff. For some reason, they skipped our cars. In a previous church life, I would have said, because we are favored by the Lord and blessed. Um, but no, <laughs> we, we went outside and we, we stood with our neighbors who were just some sad, some baffled, some just angry. Like there's a sense of, okay, we got to fix the car window, which for some of our neighbors, that was going to be even too expensive at that point for them. And they didn't know how they were going to do that. And then others of our neighbors, it's just this sense of intrusion. Somebody did this. Somebody came in and broke our windows and came, came into our lives. And then I know that there were, um, I heard a lot of 
just anger and the desire for retribution. That whoever these people are, they're just terrible people. And how, do they, how are they ever going to learn, right? And then also the police. Why weren't the police close? The police are right there. They're right across the street. Like, like why aren't they here? And then also, yeah, I heard this apartment complex, man, it's definitely not worth the rent that we pay for it here because of all this crime, right? This desire for justice, this desire for retribution, that things shouldn't be like this. And so we often look for somebody to blame. Sometimes the blame is rightly placed, but, but we long, we go, this shouldn't be how it is. I think we're hardwired for justice, not just in those situations, but as children, we're hardwired for justice. I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of kids on a playground. It's not too long before you're gonna hear somebody go, that's not fair, right? We were around all the cousins. Uh, uh, Lucy has a bunch of little cousins close to her age and they're all playing together, four kids plus Lucy, five kids now, plus uh, they keep having kids. And so <laughs> they're all together in this place and, they're, and they're, eventually there's this cry out for, they did this to me, that's not fair, that's not right. We're hardwired for justice. We're hardwired for things to be right. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes we see it clearly. Sometimes it's messy. We go, what is justice in this situation? But even when it's clear, we tend to muck it up. We mess it up. Why can't we seem to ultimately fix injustice? And we also want this on a larger scale than just for ourselves. It's not just when somebody does something for us. We want justice for Atatiana Jefferson, the 28-year-old black woman who was babysitting her nephew in her home when she was fatally shot by a police officer. We want justice in Syria for the Kurdish people who were abruptly told that those who have defended them will no longer defend them and the Turkish forces are gonna come in. We want justice for children stranded from their parents at our country's southern border. But these are just the high profile cases. These are the ones that we see on the news. These are the systemic injustices that we see on a large scale. But, but overall, we see that in our world, unfortunately, the rich and the powerful often use their wealth and power to get even richer. And the poor and the marginalized who can't do anything about their marginalization continue to be marginalized. And yet we have such a system now where then the poor and the marginalized go out and buy products that end up making those who are more powerful and rich more powerful and more rich. And injustice doesn't always seem to be carried out at the hands of people either. So there's those cases where we go, okay, there's people who are carrying out injustice, but there's also things like natural disasters that wipe out whole societies and we sit and scratch our heads going, that's not fair, that's not right. How come the people in People in devastated communities like New Orleans continue to be the recipients of natural disasters, right? Our friends and family members, all of us know friends and family members who have lived good lives. They have taken care of their bodies and they've struggled well and then they get diagnosed with a terminal disease or they die tragically. Sometimes we see justice at work, but we never see it always and we certainly never see it perfectly. And when we do see it, it's like, oh, that was justice. That was things putting right. And then boom, it's gone. How can we be rescued? Will this ever end? We want to see things put right and yet we can't seem to do it. Okay, I'm not gonna end the sermon right there because I've just oppressed all of us, right? 
we have a few options of what to do with this voice of justice that we hear. On the one hand, we can say that the voice is just a fantasy and just an illusion, okay? The world is just what it is. This was kind of the thoughts of um, philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche, that pragmatic in our thinking, that really we just assume justice is never gonna be done, that this voice that we have is not really the true voice. It's, not, it's just a fantasy. So go ahead and get yours in this life. <laughs> Live pragmatically, grab for power. That's kind of the first option. On the other hand, many, and maybe you grew up in a church like this, that we could say that, well, what that voice speaks of is it speaks of a heaven that's really far away and doesn't really have anything to do with our life now. So we just keep dreaming, ignore all the bullies in this world, and then one day we're gonna escape this place. We're gonna go to the sweet by and by, and that's all gonna be different. That's another option. So we can ignore it on one hand, or we can say it's kind of an ethereal thing that's far away, and that's what that voice is for. But Orthodox Christianity has always asserted something altogether different from these two. We affirm that the reason we long for justice is because someone has put that longing there. Someone is speaking to us and pointing us to a better way. And this someone really cares very much about our present world and our present lives and has made us and has made the world for something that involves putting it right, restoring it, putting ourselves right, putting our communities right, and finally being rescued once and for all. In our Jeremiah passage, we have this promise of the one day when justice will come to Israel. Now, we've been reading a lot of Jeremiah texts over the past several weeks, if you've been with us. And Jeremiah, for a lot, a lot of the book, does a great job of telling Israel just how bad things are gonna be for them. Okay, things are gonna be dark and bad and God's gonna tear you down and uproot you and destroy you. And then he transitions last week or two weeks ago, where he talks about, okay, now that you're in this oppression, that you're in this foreign land, you have to learn how to live there and to be faithful there and to be committed there. But this week, Jeremiah 31, we get this hope. This is not forever, that restoration is coming, that healing is coming. A new day is coming. God says that right now, Israel is suffering unfairly. And it doesn't make sense in light of what they've done. And he says, they're paying for the sins of their parents. That's that metaphor of um, your parents ate sour grapes and you as children, your teeth are on edge. That's kind of funny. I think the best metaphor for us may not be sour grapes. It might be like... Um, uh, brain freeze when you drink like a Slurpee or something, right? It's like your parents drank the Slurpee too quickly, but then you're getting the brain freeze <laughs> is kind of the idea. So you're paying for your parents' sin, but he's saying that that's not really the case anymore. That's unjust. You shouldn't have to pay for your, the sins of your generations. A time will come where you will not suffer, suffer unjustly. And God says he will establish a new covenant with Israel. Now, I don't know about you. I grew up in church, so I hear this language of covenant, and I kind of like zone out a little bit, but a covenant is a promise, a commitment, a partnership. And God had made a covenant with Israel and he had given them the law, but this law that they were obeying was a signpost. It was just a signpost of what God ultimately wanted to do in the world. The law of the Old Testament could restrain the people of Israel. It could hold them back. It could point them, don't do these things because this isn't in the heart of God, which was good but it couldn't actually change or transform a sinful heart. God then makes a new promise. 
And that promise, he says, is gonna be more intimate. It'll be like a deeper formation that will happen where the law will be written on their hearts. That there is something, God's relationship, God's covenant, God's promise will be so close to you, it will be transformative at the core of who you are. It won't just be an external law that you have to obey that will restrain you. It will actually form and shape you. Walter Brueggemann says it this way, so that obeying will be as normal and as readily accepted as breathing and eating. This is not just a restraining covenant or a guide rail, but a complete heart change that will change God's people and change the world. Now for Christians, this is a foreshadowing of the day that this voice that we always thought we heard took on human flesh. God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And God's spirit came to dwell in the core of who we are by faith. And we joined his family. And he lives in us. On the cross, the living God took the injustice and the violence and the sin of the world and of each of us on himself. And he died under the weight of that sin and that injustice And church history has always affirmed that somehow in doing that, he exhausted its power. He used it up. All of it was heaped on him and he exhausted its power. But all along, as we see in the life of Jesus, he shows us a new kind of justice that's not driven by violent retribution. It's not justice that, see, I'm gonna get you because you did this to me. It's not, I'll get you back. It is a justice that's rooted in self-giving love and in healing for all. Jesus, if you look at his life, I think he had every right to turn to rage at every point. His longing for injustice could have turned to anger and could have turned to violent retribution in a heartbeat, but it didn't. Because our God has a way of doing things upside down that's actually right side up that this is how God judges, that God's judgment is not punitive, but restorative. Brian Zond is a pastor in Missouri, and he says this, beware of cultivating perpetual rage. (laughs) I know there's much to be angry about, but your soul cannot bear the strain of perpetual rage. Pray more, end of quote. (laughs) I love that. There's so much to respond to in the world with rage. There's a type of anger that is totally healthy and totally appropriate, but that's not rage. It's, it's, it's tempting in our world to respond to things with perpetual rage, but your soul can't handle it. And that's what prayer does in us, is prayer helps us to say, Lord, I take all of the pain and the injustice and the anger that I'm feeling in this moment and help me see it through the lens of who you are. Jesus set in motion the creator's plan to put the world right. And ultimately, when, when one day we see God's desire in fullness, this thing that Jesus has set in motion will be in fullness, the world will be made new. Injustice will cease. Our longing for justice will be fulfilled and it'll be in a way that we never would have expected. And God's love will be at the center of that. It's important for us to remember that God wants justice more than we do. 
This parable in Luke 18 is really clearly about the longing for justice. We have this widow who keeps going to the local judge and begging him to rule in her favor. So he's going over and over again. She's going over and over again to him and begging for justice. Please, will you, will you choose on my behalf? Will you decide on my behalf? Will you declare justice in this situation? Most of you know that I used to have an office over in East Nashville where our church used to meet off of Trinity Lane across from the police station. And every day there were a handful of people standing in front of the station holding signs that said justice for Jock. And they were protesting the court's decision not to prosecute Joshua Lippert, a police officer, for the fatal shooting of Jock Clemens. And it is a messy situation. As you read up on it, and I've read every article that I can on this, um, it is less clear than some of the other high-profile police shootings that we saw about the time. And the case is just heartbreaking. Um, the case was closed in August of 2017, but one of the things I noticed is at that time, Jacques' family and friends continued to stand outside and hold signs and, that said justice for Jacques every single day. You don't have to make your own decision about this case, whether it was decided rightly or wrongly, in order to grieve with this family. It's the longing for justice. It's the longing for things to be right. They wanted justice and they yelled justice for Jacques every single day. So when I think about the persistent widow here, this is the person I'm thinking about. Um, in fact, I don't wanna muddy the waters too much. It doesn't actually tell us that the widow was in the right in this story but she's longing for justice. We don't know what the situation was, but I think about this family longing for the world to be right, saying this shouldn't have happened. Lord, put things right. I also think about church history and I think about people like William Wilberforce, as you read his story in England at the end of the slave trade, that he continued to submit bills before parliament that would abolish slavery. And he did it over and over again. And when he first started doing that, people saw him as an extremist as an outsider, that he's a radical. And so his bills were just always thrown to the side. It's just an extremist. And it was eventually with his persistence over and over again, committed to his Christian faith, that eventually England abolished the slave trade. I think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who continued in persistence to call out injustice. I think about Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa during apartheid, who... Um, was seen by both sides as not quite radical enough. And yet he stood as a bridge between people through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and longed for justice over and over again. These people who in light of their Christian conviction, all three of them, committed to prayer, stood on behalf of the oppressed of a society and were persistent. I think about them when I think about this widow. The early church fathers couched this passage specifically in terms of prayer. And we've talked about this at length, but we shouldn't separate acting for justice and praying for justice. They always have to go together, okay? But we are called to persistence in prayer. We are called to consistently pray for justice in our life. But there's a problem with this parable. None of the parables are quite as nice and easy as we'd like them to be. None of them are like Aesop's fables where there's a really clear little moral at the end of the story. No, they're all messy. They all have layers. They're all deep. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus. The problem with this parable is Jesus is indicating that the judge is God. 
So this widow is, is persisting and asking the judge for, for justice. But the judge sounds nothing like God. The judge, it says, doesn't even fear God and seems indifferent towards justice. What? But I wonder if sometimes our world feels this way, doesn't it? Does anybody care? Does God even care about this situation? In an age of social media, little things become big stories, right? And large-scale, horrible injustices are here today and forgotten about tomorrow. Does anybody even care, including God? I think this parable raises that up in us. We can think about the persistent widow and go, does God care? Is he just an uncaring judge? This is the picture that some people both then and now have about God. Israel often wondered if Yahweh was simply a distant, uncaring God who didn't care about justice. They knew the stories about Exodus, about God sustaining their ancestors in the desert, but perhaps this time, once and for all, God had forgotten about them. Today, in the face of injustice, many see God as an uncaring judge who is indifferent to the suffering of his people and the sufferings of the world. And yet, even in the midst of that, in the midst of that perception, there are still persistent widows crying out and longing for justice. It's significant that this woman was a widow because the widows were the ones who Israel were to care for uniquely, to look out for. And the leaders at the time, Jesus is saying, had failed, but Jesus stands with the widows. Jesus is always on the side of those who long for justice. But here I think is one of the points of this passage, that even an unjust judge, when an injustice is shoved in his face over and over again, even an unjust judge will finally relent and say, okay, fine, I'm gonna declare for justice in this situation. How much more will the God who loves you and who has true justice at the core of his being vindicate you and see that justice is done. Don't give up, Jesus is saying. He's saying it to Israel as they've sat in oppression for years and years and years and generations and generations. He says, don't give up, continue to seek him. God has your best in mind. Scripture, the scripture that we have, the Bible, was formed, put together, in order to point us to the one judge who is true and good all the way through. That's what scripture is designed for, that we read the scripture to point us to God as revealed in Christ, okay? Our passage in 2 Timothy describes the purpose of scripture. And if you grew up in church, you've probably heard verses 16 and 17 before. Um, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This rightly describes the purpose of scripture. But it's important for us to see, especially those of us who've been raised in certain types of um, church, it's important for us to see that scripture doesn't exist in a vacuum. The Bible wasn't just dropped from heaven one day, okay? The Bible exists as a pointer to Christ, pointer to God, and also for the worshiping community. The Bible is for the church. It exists in the context of the church. 
The broader text here tells us that scripture was created in the context of a worshiping community. So Paul tells Timothy, from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And all throughout the book, he's told Timothy, you're part of this bigger story. You're part of this community. And scripture serves for that purpose. But the second thing is scripture always points us to Christ. So when telling Timothy to preach the word, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So here's what I wanna suggest. When scripture gets detached, either from a worshiping community or from a pointer to Jesus Christ, scripture is used way outside of its intention and what it was created for. And actually scripture can become abusive when that happens. It can become oppressive. People can use scripture. And maybe you've heard this passage before when it says all scripture is God breathed and somebody will say, that means every single verse you read, we should be taking it to the letter. Okay, Fine, but it can't ever be detached from the broader story of God's people, and it certainly can't be detached from the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. It's like when you realize that, like when you take scripture out of context or you take it away from a worshiping community or away from a pointer to Jesus Christ, it's like when you realize you don't actually have a Phillips head screwdriver in your house, but you really need one, and you go, all right, I'm gonna like jam my keys in there and see if I can get that or I'm gonna use a flathead and just kind of try to twist it, it, it might be okay. <laughs> it might get the job done, but it's not designed to do that. The Bible is not designed to do anything outside of that context, all right? Now, I believe that the Bible is one of history's most important collections, but it's not primarily a historical document, okay? The Bible is a literary marvel, but detached from a worshiping community, it's not just a piece of literature, right? And this is why we don't encourage people to just take their Bible and shut themselves in their closet and read it and do what it says without any church or without any community. We need community, okay? We need to study what our family members here say, but we also need to study what our ancient family members have said about these texts. It's not like the Bible is not a plug and play hardware device for our little brain machines where we just stick it in and then it kind of comes out. We need family, we need community, we need to read this together. So we can't detach it from community, but we also can't detach it from Christ. The scripture is intended to be a witness to Christ, to God. When we use bits of it out of context, detached from the character and heart of God as revealed in the narrative of scripture, it can be abusive. So that's why people use scripture to say all kinds of horrible things that don't look like the God revealed in Jesus at all. Maybe I'm trying to say the same thing over and over again, but I hope you guys hear me. People use scripture to say messed up stuff that isn't in the heart of God and isn't justice as revealed in Jesus, okay? But in view of the nature and heart of God as revealed in Christ, in view of our future Christian hope, in the midst of a worshiping community, the scriptures provide such rich language for the God who will never give up on his people. And that's what scripture is designed for. If we're honest, 
we don't just want justice for the things we read about on Twitter or see on TV. Just as we realize that not all is right in the world, we also all realize not all is right in our hearts. Justice is not fully done in here. We want justice, or another word for that is justification, there too, even though sometimes we numb ourselves to the fact that we need that. Prayer and contemplation on Christ gets us in touch with our brokenness. That's why we say the prayer of confession and we have a time of kind of self-inventory at the very beginning of every service. Prayer and contemplation is essential because it helps us to remember that without Christ, not all is right in here. There's some things that are broken. Chris Hertz says this, through activism, we confront toxicity in our world, but through contemplation, we confront it in ourselves. We need prayer and contemplation on who God is. One way to paraphrase what the woman was asking for when she cries, she says, justify me or declare that I am in the right. The apostle Paul uses this term that you've probably heard justification a lot. And he talks about justification by faith. Justification by faith is a doctrine that is central to the Christian faith. It became central um, again in the 1500s during the Protestant Reformation. That became a lot of Martin Luther's emphasis. And there will be a day when God will declare those who are in Christ to be in the right. When justice will be done, not just in the world, but when we will be declared because we are in Christ that we are in the right. We are justified not because we've lived perfect lives and we can say hallelujah to that because none of us have lived perfectly according to God's plan. But we are justified because we are in him and he is the one who has proven true, the one who has been faithful. So what is required to be justified? What is required for justification? Well, I think the woman in Luke 18 illustrates it. What is required is crying out independence and recognizing I can't do this on my own and I need you. We recognize that we can't bring about our own justification. We can't fix things in our hearts or in the world on our own. We need someone outside of ourselves. And in Christ, we are justified, not because of what we've done, but because we are in him. And we can trust that. You can trust that. As you, as you have been, become part of God's family, as you have cried out to him, as you have obeyed him in baptism, we can trust we are part of God's family and he will justify us. No enemy, no lie can stand against God's people. And that means no matter what we face in this life, no matter how painful, awful, tragic, or just plain boring, None of that can nullify or stand against God's promise. The one who is fully true and fully loving and fully just will prove himself so and will prove us to be in the right. So in closing, what do we do with that longing for justice? What do we do? Do we just recognize it as a fantasy and close it off? Do we just think that one day we're going to be snatched away and so that's where our hope is. I want to say what we do with our longing for justice is we lean into it. 
We can't ignore it. We can't dismiss it. Being in the presence of Jesus won't let us do that. Justification in our own hearts or injustice perpetrated against us and justice for the world, all of that requires a complete dependence on God's great love. We trust that God wants justice more than we do and that he has created us to want that. If this persistent widow kept pestering the unjust judge, the one who was bent against doing what was right, how much more should we continue to lean on, to go back to and to turn our lives over to the one who wants nothing but good for us? He is the God who stepped into our world and took injustice (laughs) upon himself. If you're here today and maybe this stirs you and you're thinking, there's something in my life that's just not right. It's just, I've moved towards something that I know isn't right and my heart is unmoored from my true identity. I wanna encourage you to pray in dependence today, to lean into the work of being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness not by an uncaring taskmaster, but in the presence of the one who loves you and cares for you. If you're sitting here and you're going, but what about this suffering in my life? I want you to know that as we suffer, that Jesus is right there with you, that he stands with you in your suffering. And as you bring your needs before God, he hears you and he walks with you and he suffers as you suffer. And as we, the church, stand with the world's pain today, and I believe the church is supposed to do that. We're supposed to look at a world that's hurting and broken, and we're supposed to hold that. We're supposed to cry out to God on behalf of our broken world. But we stand with more questions than we have answers. And my prayer is that we might trust the one who is true love, the one who promises that the day will come when God's people will be vindicated once and for all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that you created us to long for what is true and good and beautiful. We've gone astray from that and we often go astray from that. But Lord, we thank you that you show us true justice. You show us what these longings are pointing to. A justice that's not retributive, but is self-giving and restorative. I pray for us today, for those of us that even though we know our true identity, we know that we're in you, that we continue to choose counterfeits. Lord, help us to be reminded of that great dependence that we have on you. As we wrestle with the injustice that's done against us, things that we look at and we go, that's not fair, it's not right. Lord, I pray for this supernatural grace to trust you in the midst of it while we still hold that cry for justice. And then as we, as the church, hold the pain of the world and cry on behalf of the world, Lord, this is not right. Put this right. We continue to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to be reminded that you will be faithful. That even now our acts and our work of justice is part of that great plan that's unfolding of you putting the world right. We trust you now and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.